So what's the most awkward conversation you've ever had? That might be a good lunchtime conversation. Uh, some of us, like me, we're just magnets for awkward conversation. It just happens to us. Maybe uh, you forget somebody's name or the name of their children, or you forget important details, things you were supposed to know, or maybe you bring up something you weren't supposed to know <laughs> that was meant to be a secret, um, or maybe you just start telling embarrassing details or stories about yourself because you can't think of anything else to say. We, I think we've probably all been there. My guess is if you're like me, you don't go looking for awkward conversation. If anything, we, we try our best to avoid it, right? We all, as we look in the Gospel of John, we're in chapter 4 now, uh, I think there's a pattern that's beginning to emerge. It's that Jesus was no stranger to awkward conversations. In fact, he makes a habit of it. Jesus turns conversations awkwardly with intentionality. The things he says, the questions he asks, Jesus never minded making people feel uncomfortable. And he didn't do that for its own sake, of course. He did it for a greater purpose. The reason is Jesus, whenever he dealt with a person, he was always aiming for the heart. Jesus was always... Um, unwilling to just shoot the breeze with people and go on his way, he wanted to bring people to the intersection of God's truth and God's grace, which meant exposing things that typically we might not want to deal with, asking questions that demand difficult answers. Whatever it was, though, Jesus was never afraid of that because he wanted to bring people into grace and truth. Now, we've already seen this once, in John chapter 3, a couple of weeks ago, Jesus had a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, uh, a very prominent Jewish leader, and Jesus told him, you must be born again. Not what Nicodemus wanted to hear and not what he assumed to be true, but Jesus gave him a new way of seeing God and understanding eternal life. Well, we see again in chapter 4 an awkward conversation, but with a very different kind of person. Nothing like Nicodemus, someone who, frankly, was on the down and out, the kind of person that we might not expect uh, Jesus to even converse with in the first place. Um, we see Jesus today breaking all sorts of rules, religious rules, social rules, in order to reach a Samaritan woman. And by extension, we'll see it next week, but by extension, he ends up reaching our entire village. So look with me at John chapter 4. Uh, John gives us a, kind of a bridge paragraph to begin here in verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, John the Baptist, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Uh, so John tells us what they were doing. Jesus and his disciples were traveling through a land called Samaria. Now that all by itself would have made Jesus' disciples very nervous because of who the Samaritans were. We're talking about a people group the Samaritans, who were only partially Jewish. They also had Gentile ancestry. 
And so the, the pure-blooded Jewish people of the day viewed the Samaritans as functionally less than human. They, they called them half-breeds, and, and I know that's a hard phrase to even say, but that gives you the force of how these Samaritans would have been viewed within the culture of the Jews. There were serious racial and religious conflicts at work between these two people groups, these two nations. And so the fact that Jesus is making his disciples travel through Samaria, through a land of darkness and impurity, in their estimation, see, that was bad enough all by itself, that they had to tread on Samaritan dirt. But then Jesus stops outside of a town called Sychar. It's about noon. It's the heat of the day. It's lunchtime. Jesus needs to rest. So he takes a seat by the well right outside of town. And that's where the story really takes off. Look at verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, quickly here, uh, I, I made this uh, hopefully clear already. Jews and Samaritans don't mix. They didn't mix. But neither did men and women. And we talked about this a little bit last week, about how women were considered um, second-class citizens in these ancient cultures. In those days, a self-respecting man would never start a conversation with a woman he didn't know. If she was outside of his family, if she wasn't his wife or his sister or his mother, you wouldn't begin a conversation, especially in a scenario like this one where it's only Jesus and this woman. They're alone outside of town at the well. Y'all, this would have been considered potentially a pickup. This would have been scandalous from the get-go. And this woman knows it. She can't believe that this Jewish man is speaking with her, even just to ask her for a drink. Just the fact that Jesus asks for something to drink, he's violating pretty much every code, every norm within the culture, religiously, socially, morally. Jesus is putting his credibility at risk in even opening his mouth. But in the end, of course, we'll find out Jesus was not really looking for something from her. He was desiring something for her. And that becomes clear now in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, just as it was with Nicodemus, the spiritual significance of Jesus' words is just lost on this woman to this point. 
and it would be on us too. We don't need to look down on her for this. She doesn't understand. She thinks we're talking about water here. She thinks Jesus has found a better well or a spring perhaps that would benefit her uh, tangibly, better water, more water somewhere else. But you notice again that the point that Jesus is driving at from the get-go, not just for the woman in the story, but for us. You see it back in verse 10? He says, if you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for water, living water in this case. And so let's discuss this for a second. What is the gift of God that Jesus is talking about here? What is it that's unique to him and his ability to offer this gift to this woman, to us? Well, I think Jesus is making a reference to something that was spoken by God centuries before, back in Isaiah 55. We're going to put this on the screen. God is speaking here. Listen to this invitation that God gives. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Now, there in Isaiah, is God talking about physical water, wine, milk, bread? Is he talking about taking a trip to the grocery store? No, he's talking about something spiritual. God is inviting us into the gifts of his grace, which are given to us, God says, without cost. Something we can't earn, something we're not meant to try to achieve, but something only God can give to us. Forgiveness, salvation, relationship with God forever. That's what's being offered there in that scripture. Y'all, this is, God is promising to us, offering the abundance of his grace and his glory forever. An everlasting covenant, he says. And that's exactly what Jesus is offering this woman outside of her town at noon when she comes to draw physical water. Jesus is saying to her, God is promising grace and I'm the one come to fulfill it. Later on, a few chapters more uh, in John 7, Jesus stands up before a crowd of people and he shouts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. Jesus is not just talking about something he can give, something that could fit in a bucket. He's talking about something that belongs to him and is now ours to receive from his hand. And so, y'all, I, I want to point out the fact, and, and we, you know, you may have read this story before, and you, certainly we understand there's a deep spiritual significance to what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about physical water. But we need to understand that what Jesus is offering this woman here, the very same grace he offers to us, it's not what we might think, and it's certainly not what she thought. She thought Jesus was simply offering her something a little better than what she already had, a better version of her present 
experience. Show me this well so that I don't have to keep coming back to it. That's what you'll say in a minute. And y'all, if we're honest, a lot of times when we think about spiritual things, when we think about religion, we even think about God, we might tend to think that God's role in this universe is to take care of me and to give me what I need. And if I'm good, if I do my part, if I come to church, if I obey the rules, if I have good intentions, then God will give me a little something extra. He'll give me a better version than maybe what I presently have. And y'all, I want to I show that, that what this scripture is communicating to us, what Jesus is trying to communicate, is not an offer of merely better circumstances. Even if that's what I might settle for, even if that's what I might be looking for in coming to God, right? I mean, that's what we all want better circumstances, more, more wealth, more influence, more human applause and approval, more comfort, more happiness. You can fill in your own blank there. But this scripture is here to show us that God is not interested in temporary improvements. Not to say things might not get better, and if they do, then that's grace, and we can be grateful for it. But that's not his goal, is not to help us along our way, not to give us, to throw us a bone periodically, as if we were his pets. No, Jesus has come to give us something altogether new, something greater, something otherworldly. That's why he says, whoever drinks of the water I give, will never thirst, but the water that I give will become in you a well of water springing up to eternal life. And see, that's the promise, not just that God might do some good things for you, but that God might abide in you. See, see y'all, salvation means that we get the gift of God himself. It's possible that we might talk about the Christian life and all the good things we get, man, we get forgiveness, we get heaven, right? We get a, we get a do-over, we get, we get a, we, all these wonderful things that we get. We get a new lease on life, and we could go on and on with, with smiles on our faces about how wonderful all these precious gifts are, and we might not even mention the name of God. The gifts themselves are only precious and wonderful because it's God who gives them. And that's what Jesus is offering. It's not offering something that she can have independent of him. She's offering him relation, her, he's offering her relationship. See, that's what it is to know Christ, that, that we unite ourselves, Jesus unites himself to us so that his divine life becomes our life. And so when Jesus says, the water I give becomes in you a well of water springing up to eternal life? That means that the all-satisfying, life-giving Spirit of God makes His home in our hearts by faith. We don't just get things from God, we get God Himself. Now, I realize that's, that's very spiritual language, and it might be kind of hard for us to grasp. It's easier for us to just take the things we can see right in front of our face. It's true for me, too. But y'all, Jesus doesn't shy away from spiritual language. He, he always creates handles to it, right? In this case, we, we understand water and the need of water. We, it's a necessity for life, but he's offering something beyond that, beyond what is merely human and tangible, right? And so it's okay for us to use spiritual language. It's something that we can't possibly quantify in this life. And so y'all, what Jesus is offering for her and for us 
is not just a better version of something we could already have in this life. Right? It's not that we've been living grade B and he offers grade A. It's something altogether different. It's life itself that God provides. And so think about why we need it. Think about the question that God asked us back in Isaiah 55. And y'all, this is a powerful question. He says to us, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Think about what, what God's asking us there. Why are you giving yourself to things that ultimately are empty? Why are you seeking gladness and satisfaction and life apart from God? Y'all, that's the essence of what sin is. Sin is the insanity that you and I convince ourselves that we can find what we truly want and need outside of the grace of God. And that's why we keep going back to that sin or we trade that sin in for another sin because we convince ourselves that life can be found there. And so we'll continue to seek it out until it runs entirely dry. And then we might move on to something else. That's the human problem. And that's, what, that's, the, that's why the question that God asked to us, why are you continually pursuing that which does not satisfy? We need to grapple with that. Because that's ultimately what we're doing in all of our sin. Nobody, I'm sure that nobody in, in the morning, you don't wake up saying, you know what, I'm going to rebel against God today. I've had it. No, we don't do that. We don't plan to rebel. We don't, we're not, we're not um, malicious in our intentions. But we chase after that which doesn't satisfy. That's, that's sin. And y'all, that's what this woman had to deal with herself. This woman, uh, you know, she's, she's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's got some things working against her culturally. But now we found out the real essence of her need. Okay, look at verse 15. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She still thinks he's talking about a physical well. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Awkward. Y'all, two major things are happening right here. We may struggle with what, what's, what in the world is Jesus doing? Two major things. First, Jesus is revealing his divine nature to this woman. Remember, he said at the front, if you knew the one speaking to you, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for living water. Well, of course she doesn't know him. He's a, she's never laid eyes on this man before. He's a stranger to her, but he knows her. He knows everything about her. He knows everything she's ever done. It's clear at this point, it's clear to her that this is no ordinary man. He's revealing something about himself. But you notice also, Jesus is not just revealing who he is. He's revealing her true nature. He's showing her something about herself. Jesus is holding up the mirror so that this woman can see her own great need. So think about what God says in Isaiah 55. 
Why are you giving yourselves to things that can't satisfy? Why are you turning to sin in an effort to be happy and fulfilled? Or in the case of this woman, what is Jesus communicating to her? Why are you searching for your fulfillment and your identity in men? Is it working? Have you found it yet? Five husbands and now another man on the side? See, by bringing up her marriages, Jesus is exposing her sin, yes, but not to condemn her, not to shame her. That's not his purpose. Jesus is showing her the dryness and the emptiness of her own soul that no earthly thing can quench. In her case, it was relationships. In your case, it might be something else. Whatever it is, the dryness of soul can't be quenched by that thing, by that person, no matter how many times we come back to the well. And so Jesus will do this not just for her, but for you. And he does it for me. Y'all, without apology, as awkward and painful as it may be, Jesus holds the mirror up to all of us. Jesus is not afraid to expose our sin and to reveal our truest and deepest needs and force us to come to terms with it. Nobody likes doing that. Nobody likes having the blanket pulled off of the things we keep undercover. Nobody likes the light switch being turned on where the things that we keep in the darkness are hidden. Nobody enjoys that, but Jesus does it. And he does it out of love. Because God knows our hearts, and he knows that if not for divine intervention, we'll continue to go back to those places, those things, those relationships. We'll always be seeking a well that cannot fulfill, a life that isn't there. Y'all, listen to what God says in Jeremiah chapter 2, in keeping with what we're talking about. These are God's words. My people, he says, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Isn't this exactly what the woman at the well had been doing, had been spending her life doing, seeking to quench her soul's great thirst through sinful means? And yet, if we're honest, we all do it too. We've all done it. We've all been there. Some of us are still living that way, even today, rather than coming to God in wholehearted worship, rather than building our lives on the Lord and his word, we try to create our own path to life. We fill our buckets up, our cisterns up on our own terms. You see what God says? You build cisterns for yourselves, but they hold no water. They're broken. And try to imagine yourself holding two buckets of all the good things you desire to experience in this life. And yet those buckets have holes in the bottom. They can never stay full. As soon as you fill them up, they're empty again. That's sin. No matter what it promises to us, no matter how full it feels in any given moment, it's emptiness. The cistern is broken because we don't trust in the Lord who is the fountain of living waters. Y'all, that's a fountain that doesn't run dry. That's a fountain that has no bottom, has no limit. 
So sin doesn't satisfy. We only end up thirsting again. That's what Jesus is trying to show this woman and by extension us. And here's what I hope we see as we look at John chapter 4. Jesus knows this woman and all the sordid details. He knows things that nobody else knows. And as you, you can imagine the pit in her stomach as he reveals his knowledge of her private life. But you see what he's doing. He's pursuing her anyway. You know, this, Jesus knows her story, and yet he still engages her. And I hope we see the good news that comes from that reality. Jesus sets this divine appointment up. You think this was an accident? That he just stops at the well outside of Sakaar for no good reason? No, it was with every intention of engaging this woman. He saw her all the way to the bottom, y'all. All the way to the deepest sin and despair in her heart. And he still offers her living water. He still loves her right where she is. He offers her the greatest thing that God could give. That is salvation. That is life. And y'all, if, if you don't understand this about the nature of God, I want to plead with you in this moment. God is holy and God is righteous. Yes, he is. And he does not set those things aside in order to love us. But he does not love you on your best day only. He does not love you at your best intentions. He knows your heart and just how bad you and I are. He knows the stuff that nobody else knows. And he loves you right there. He loves you right there. He offers you living water. See, Jesus tells us what salvation is. It's a well that never runs dry. In fact, it's a well that overtakes us in the sense that we become that well by his grace. The water is not just outside of us, but within us. But now, I want you to, to see what that actually means for us, how that actually transforms us. That's how, the, that's how this paragraph wraps up. He tells her what living water is, yes, but now, how does it work? Look at verse 19. The woman says to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Duh. Our fathers, she says, worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the woman changes the subject, possibly to avoid embarrassment, but she does ask a legitimate question. See, the Samaritans, they believed in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, but they disregarded the rest. The Jews, of course, they believed in the whole Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, our Old Testament. And so they had differing beliefs. And, and one of their primary differences was the place where God chose to make his name dwell. The Jews, of course, had the temple in Jerusalem. The, the Samaritans, they had their own temple at a place called Mount Gerizim. Okay? And she's asking, well, which one is it? You're a prophet, you tell me, which is right. And Jesus gives a fascinating answer. On one hand, Jesus tells her the truth. He says, y'all have it wrong. Salvation is from the Jews. Okay? 
The whole scripture is being ratified, is being affirmed in Jesus here, not just the first part. But then Jesus does something greater than that. He's not just trying to check her theology here. He's going to topple the whole system of thought. Do you see what he says? This idea that that the worship of God is limited to mountain shrines and temples and rituals. If you will dress yourself up a certain way and go to a certain place and make a certain sacrifice, then you can curry God's favor. Jesus says no. God is spirit. God is not um, limited to merely earthly things. God is not limited to the flesh or to a temple. In Acts, we're told that God does not dwell in buildings made by human hands. God is spirit, and the hour, Jesus says, of true worship is now here when God's true people will worship him in spirit and in truth. What Jesus is communicating is is a relationship with God that only he can provide. Spirit and truth means that Jesus has come to bring us directly into relationship with God, meaning you don't need a pastor or a priest to stand in between. You don't need a temple or a church building to act as your mediator so that God might accept you. You can come straight to him. We worship in spirit, Jesus says, because it's the spirit of God who gives us life. We worship in truth because Jesus is the truth. And he has explained God to us and made him known to us. We're not what we used to be. Things don't operate the way they used to operate. He says it's not about temples and and mountains, my friend. God is making himself known. And he's offering relationship face to face. And so this woman, now, she's not all the way there yet. But she's starting to put the pieces together. Look at the last thing she says in verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. He'll make sense of all this. (laughs) Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Cut to commercial. Like Like the perfect cliffhanger right there. What a bombshell. Everything else that was confusing and out of whack in this conversation, this woman can't put the pieces together, but now the Messiah is standing in front of her. And y'all, I want you to see what Jesus is really saying here. Jesus is not just saying, I'll show you the way to God. He's saying, I am the way. I am the way. Jesus is not saying to us, I'll show you where to find life. And to the degree that you really pursue it, you can achieve it. No. Jesus says, I am the life. I am the way. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is our mediator. He is the one that comes to give us life. He comes from heaven to save us. Not to show us a better way or to give us a better set of circumstances, but to give us life itself. That was what he was offering her, even if she didn't realize it at first. Y'all, we're going to see the conclusion of this story next week as to how this woman becomes, frankly, a hero and someone that we should admire and imitate. But that's for next week. Right now, I want us to close with a a connection I think John would want us to see. I mentioned earlier the story of Nicodemus. It came just in the the previous chapter, chapter 3. Jesus takes this man, Nicodemus, and says, you must be born again. Right? Nicodemus was a moral 
educated, highly esteemed Jewish man. And yet Jesus says to him, your pedigree doesn't get you in. All of your religiosity will not get you into the kingdom. You must be born again. And Jesus tells him how? By the Son of Man being raised up on the cross. You have faith in him. That's what it means to be born again. Nicodemus, what you have in your account is not enough. Now that was awkward. That was stunning. But this is equally stunning, maybe even more so. Here in the very next chapter, chapter 4, Jesus encounters the exact opposite kind of person, an immoral, uneducated, lowly Samaritan woman. She's everything that Nicodemus wasn't. And yet what does Jesus do? He offers her living water. Nicodemus's pedigree could not get him in. This woman's lack of pedigree could not keep her out. Your failures can't keep you from the kingdom if you turn to Jesus Christ and trust him. Jesus is communicating, by faith in me, you will be saved. The insider and the outsider need the exact same grace. We need Jesus just the same. And so I want to say to you, you may have grown up going to church every Sunday, and in that sense, we feel like insiders. We know the language. We know how to act. We know the stories. Fine. This may be the first time you've ever been in church. And it matters not. It, matter, it doesn't matter at all. Not the insider or the outsider. Nobody's got an inside track to God. He's the one come for us. So that by faith in his name, we might be saved, no matter where we've been or what we've done, inside, outside, or in between. We may all be brought near by the blood of Christ. He saves us as a free gift of his grace. So by faith in him, we may have living water and we never thirst again. Let's pray. Father, will you grant us this morning a very clear picture of your goodness and your love? Some of us are just, we're just more like Nicodemus. We like to think that we know the Bible and we have a lot of answers and we, we, have, we do a lot of good things and we don't have a permanent record and we feel really good about who we are. And Father, in that case, I pray you would humble us. We must be born again. Nothing we bring to the table will you accept as righteousness. We need Jesus. And Father, I trust that there are others in this room that we're much more like this Samaritan woman. We, we have a long list of regrets. We've got sharp pain in our heart that aches us because of our own decisions or maybe because of what others have done to us. Lord, we are, we know what it is to feel sorrow, to feel lost and hopeless. We know what it is to, to go back to the same place looking for life, but never find it. And Father, I pray that you will to show us, Father, with, with, with a crystal clear 
beauty, the love of Jesus Christ, that we'll see him as we never have before, the one who knows every single thing about us and offers us his grace right where we are. Father, show us what it is to drink of the living water and to never thirst again. Lord, so I pray that you would impress on our hearts by faith this gift that having tasted and seen, having enjoyed and delighted in the grace of our Savior, we would never, ever desire anything less. Let it be in us, Lord, a well of water springing up to eternal life, your very spirit within us. May we receive you in Christ's name. Amen.